Okay, here we go. I brought up another Bible because I wanted to have the one in the pew with me as well to reference. Um, but anyways, my, again, my name is Perry Siddons. It's good to be with you. I'm from uh, Oak Cliff, Saskatchewan. Um, don't hold that against me that I'm from Saskatchewan. Uh, I just finished four years at Nipwin Bible College. Does, anybody, does everybody know of Nipwin? Uh, so I have a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies from uh, uh, Nipwin Bible College. Um, and I've been doing some seminary classes this summer and hoping and trusting that I'll be starting a program in the fall and uh, hopefully getting a Master of Arts in Theology very, or in, in the next few years. At the end of November, getting married uh, to a wonderful girl named Andrea. Uh, we're, we'll be getting married in the Saskatoon area. So, a few things happening. Even though 2020 is uh, a really unusual year for all of us, um, I'm still thankful for what the Lord is doing in my life. And, uh, you know, I've done quite a bit of preaching over the years. And uh, this is this time you should be honored here because this is there's a lot of firsts here for me. Uh, this is the first time I preached in Manitoba. Uh, this is the farthest I've driven to preach. Uh, and uh, this is the first time that I'll be preaching directly from the Old Testament. So that's a clue for what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, but I thought since I'll be here this Sunday and the next that I could do a little two part series mini series. Uh, on the life of Jonah, entitled Lessons from Jonah for the Dynamic Life of Following God. Because we all go through those ebbs and flows in life, it's important to know how do we respond to God, how do we be obedient to God in all those times in life. Uh, because life isn't static, I'm sure we all know that. 2020 has shown us that, that life can come crashing, can come to a crashing halt, and we still have to know how do we live through those kind of times. The life of following God is dynamic. Uh, it's almost like playing a, a playing music. You have your crescendos and your descent. Uh, oh, I forget my musical terms. It's been a while. Right, exactly. You have you, you, when you play music. It's not just play the music. You, you there's things that are going on. Your staccatos. You have all these things going on in the music, and you have to know what to do uh, as you're playing it. And we see in the life of Jonah that it isn't, uh, uh, there isn't a science to following God. Uh, but we, we do look at the life of Jonah and we learn what not to do <laughs> in following God. In any season of life, God is always calling us to obedience and he's continually working at bringing us back to himself through trials and suffering uh, and and this is such a this is a hard topic to talk about is trials and suffering because sometimes we don't know why suffering happens we don't know why trials come our way sometimes it's just hard to know but in uh, for the Christian we know that uh, God is is using those things to make us more like Himself like a skilled uh, like a skilled carver God is whittling away at us. Until he gets that end product, and those are those. You know, we have to, as I'll as I'll get to this morning. Discerning what is God sending my way, to bring him back to himself, and that's always. I mean, in every situation in life, going back to the Lord, 
in, instead of running, whatever that may look like. So to borrow uh, a phrase from a commentator, Kevin Youngblood, he wrote a, a commentary on Jonah. And he says that the theme of Jonah is God's scandalous mercy. God's scandalous mercy. And so really the purpose of the book of Jonah is to show that God is merciful despite his wrath. Uh, that, that those two things are not in contrast to each other. God, has, God is angry, uh, just like any of us. But he's not more angry than merciful. And he's not more merciful than angry. Those two things somehow work together. But the point of Jonah is that he is quite... Uh, that he can be quite merciful in peculiar ways. So, God's people experience trials in order to know God's mercy. We, will, we, we want to see these things come up this morning in Jonah. So if you have your Bible or if you want to open up a pew Bible, we're going to be looking at a big chunk of Scripture. Um, so you can follow along with me. I will be reading, uh, we'll be looking at Jonah chapter 1. I'll be looking at the English Standard Version, but uh, I'll also try to reference uh, the Pew Bible as well, if I remember. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they did. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country and of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more um, tempestuous. Oh, brother, tempestuous. My goodness, I should have practiced that. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Oh my goodness, what does it say in uh, tempestuous? Tem oh. 
<laughs> Tumultuous. That's all, folks. Against, okay, grew more and more tumultuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we've been in your presence. We again come into your courts with praise. We give thanks to you. You are God. We are not. You are much mightier than we are. You are holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth, praise you. We give you thanks. We glorify and magnify your name, O Lord. And yet you come down to us and you show us your word. You show us how you live, how you, how you work among us in your word. So give us grace to understand, to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the height and the depth, the knowledge of God. That we may know you, that we may know how to live in this world as Christians. So give us grace to know your word, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll work on that word. Tumult, tumultuous, there we go. Uh, I'm done now. <laughs> In verses 1 and 2, we see that God spoke to Jonah to go to Nineveh, a very great city, to speak against it because of their abundant wickedness. Now, uh, so, so God called Jonah, he was a prophet, go and speak to this, preach against the evils of this city. And uh, because of God's call, we read in verse 3 that Jonah flees, he gets the heck out of there from the presence of the Lord. He got on a ship to go to, to, to at Joppa to, to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And this is, this is so interesting. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. We recall Psalm uh, 139 here for a moment, where, it's, where the author asks the Lord quite rhetorically, where shall I free, uh, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. From a, from a theological standpoint, it's impossible for any of us to leave the presence of the Lord. We're always in the presence of the Lord. For, for God is everywhere. We, if, you know, we, we believe that as Christians that God is everywhere. And yet, um, Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. There's, there's a deeper meaning here. And I think that this goes back to uh, in Genesis 4 with the story of Cain. When Cain murders his brother... And afterwards, it says that God, uh, uh, that uh, that Cain, I better quote this right, went away from the presence of the Lord. It says that Cain settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, this phrase is interesting. This this uh, this peculiar phrase, 
uh, has meaning because we, 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 it parallels the events of Adam and Eve, I believe. When they disobeyed God, it says that they were uh, exiled. They were uh, exiled east of the garden. They were banished from Eden, uh, the perfect place, or pardon me, the place of perfect fellowship with God. So Eden was God's presence, and they were kicked out. They were banished east. This is really indicating a change in relationship. And so this is the point here for with Cain is that Cain went out from or that Cain went out from God's presence, meaning that there was a change in relationship, uh, that they were no longer in fellowship with one another. Cain was being exiled from God. This, that's the key word here. God, uh, Cain was being exiled from God. So how does this relate to Jonah then? Well, if when Cain left the presence of the Lord, meaning that this was a changed relationship, this is what Jonah was trying to do. He was trying to change the relationship with God. He was trying to exile himself from God. He was trying to run away from God. He was saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you, Lord, and what you're, what you're calling me to do. He didn't want to have anything to do with God, and yet God wouldn't have anything to do with Jonah's plans. For we read that in uh, verse 4, God, uh, the Lord sent a strong wind over the sea. And actually, this, uh, this pew Bible translated uh, the Mediterranean Sea, which is interesting, but not really. It's interesting. So he sent a great uh, a storm upon the sea uh, that, that Jonah's ship was on. And this was the way, this was God's way of getting Jonah's attention, telling Jonah that, God wasn't quite done with him yet. And the author writes that the ship threatened to break up. So we really understand here that this was a powerful storm. This is not a little wind. It wasn't one of those typical summer winds that we get on the prairie uh, where maybe a shingle or two uh, blows off. I mean, that is quite powerful. But I think much more here, you could imagine the waves blowing out of the water, pouring onto the ship. We think about that in movies where the, the sailors are, the, the, the people on the ship are really battling to get their, their boat through this storm. They could drown, you know, they're very much afraid of dying here. And, and so uh, it's no wonder that they were terrified as you read in verse 5. They wanted to save their lives, so they tried everything that they could to stay alive. They each prayed to their God, they each prayed to their deity, and... Uh, and, and then they were uh, throwing cargo off the ship to lighten the load. They were trying everything they could to save their lives. And while this is all happening, Jonah is in the ship, in the bottom of the ship, sleeping. Uh, this is symbolizing his spiritual drowsiness. He's, he's not awake to what God is trying to do. Uh, you know, he, he, God is calling Jonah to Nineveh and Jonah is asleep to that. And he's asleep to what is going on in the midst of him. There's this divine event happening and Jonah has no clue. And this is symbolizing his spiritual uh, drowsiness. He's not alert to what God is doing. The storm was to wake him up physically, but it was also to uh, wake him from his spiritual slumber. So the captain sees that Jonah is sleeping and says, What are you doing sleeping, stupid? Get up! 
Call to your God for help. Further, he quips, maybe God will listen and protect us from this storm. Thinking while well, he was saying, perhaps your God will listen. You see, they were, they, were all, they were all hoping, which God do we have to pray to here? Which God do we have to pray to here? So in, in verses 7 to 10, they cast lots. The fishermen and Jonah, probably, you know, we might think of it as uh, pulling uh, straws or whatever, rolling dice maybe. They were trying to see why, who, who was the person, who is the person responsible for this misfortune coming upon them? They really had an under, they really had a sense of the spiritual realm here. If any of us were on a boat and a storm was raging, it's a, it's a natural occurrence, which is the likeliest thing. Uh, but to them, they know that there's a spiritual uh, event going on here. This is more than just a, 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 a sea storm. One of the gods is mad at them. So they cast lots. They want to know who, who has sinned, that, uh, whose sin is bringing judgment upon them all. And it falls to Jonah. They'd say to him, tell us why this is happening. What's your occupation? Where have you come from? Who are your people? Jonah answers saying, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh. That is my God, the God of heaven. Who made the sea and the dry land. They replied, why have you done this? And, and, and the text indicates that he told them that he's fleeing from God's presence. They say, why are you doing that? <laughs> Even the fishermen know that's a bad idea. <laughs> these, these pagan uh, people. So there are a few things here that, are, that I want to comment on. Is uh, that the fishermen know these pagan uh, people, they don't worship Yahweh, they don't worship the true God, but they know that they're being judged because they cry out to their deity to save them. According to the thinking of their time, they believed that one particular God controlled the sea or that the sea itself is a deity. Uh, likely, well, there were, in that time, there was all sorts of gods that controlled the sea or that uh, there, there's one view that uh, that the gods uh, brought order to the, the, the... Usually water in that time indicated chaos. And actually the Bible picks up on that theme, that water uh, resembles chaos, not being in fellowship with God, not being in fellowship with the true God. So in other cultures, there was the belief that, if I can remember this quite... Uh, if I can remember this correctly, that... Um, that these gods were bringing the water into control. They were, they were kind of conquering the waters or the, the deities of the water. But it was still there. The chaos was still there. And it could be unleashed any time, essentially. And so this is probably the thinking that these fishermen have. You know, the, this is kind of the thinking that they have. They know that they're being judged by a water god. And, and they're trying to figure out what they need to do. They want salvation. And, and they use this pagan means. They use, they, they are casting lots. This is, a, this is not a, 
thing that Yahweh would have, uh, you know, he, he never told the Israelites do this. It's a pagan means to discern who is bringing judgment upon us. And the interesting thing is that God uses it to show that it's Jonah's, that Jonah is the one here that's bringing judgment. And, and so they, they ask him why. And so we know that this is a divine intervention that's going on here. So the second thing I want to comment here is that Jonah's answer is very ironic because he essentially corrects the, the fisherman's false understanding of the divine realm. They, he says that God is actually in charge. Uh, he says in uh, verse 9 that, uh, I, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and, and what is he? He's very, being very intentional here to say he is the one who's made the sea and he's made and he's the one who made the dry land. So he's the one that's doing this. That's what Jonah is saying here. God, Yahweh is the one who's in control here. So that, it's kind of ironic that he's doing that. Uh, that God is the God over all creation. And so it's ironic that he says that he fears God, that he fears Yahweh, and I put it in, you know, air quotes to say, does he really fear God? It seems as though he's merely saying, you know, he's not trying to say, I'm a righteous person, I'm a pious man. It seems as though he's indicating, this is the God to whom my allegiance is. Everybody in that time had their God, had their idol, whatever. And so he's merely saying, this is my God. Um... But, it, but again, uh, usually that word fear in, that, uh, in this context, I mean, that, the word fear is used in a very interesting way in Jonah because there's people who are afraid, who have fear, but also fear in the sense of worship. And this is what we're getting here is that in this context, when he uses the word fear, he's, it's, uh, I worship God, I revere the Lord. But does he really? Because through his actions, he's not actually showing that, he, that Yahweh is the one whom he fears. Uh, he's more afraid of Yahweh, of this mission. He doesn't actually revere him because he's disobedient. He runs away from God rather than pursuing God's plan. And so as a result of his disobedience, God sends judgment by way of the storm and, uh, and one other thing, which will become clear next. So, in the next two verses, in verses 11 and 12, the fishermen ask Jonah what they need to do. What do we need to do to stop this storm? He tells them that, uh, he, he tells them, throw me into the sea, and the sea will stop. For some reason, Jonah, if Jonah is a prophet, he, he's in tune with, with God. To an extent, we, we see that he kind of is and he kind of isn't. Uh, but he, he, he gets it. <laughs> he knows that he has done something wrong. And he knows that the only way that this is going to end is his death. He knows. You're, he has no clue that he's going to be saved. He knows, I have to be thrown into the sea. I have to die. And this will end. He has come to the conclusion that God is judging him. He's bringing him to his death. 
because he turned away from God. The fishermen also understand that. They also understand that if, 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 they, if he dies, <laughs> the storm will end. And so they row even harder to get to dry land. They're trying, they're trying, but the storm becomes more and more tumultuous. Tem, tem, oh, I can't say it again. Tem, tempestuous. <laughs> tumultuous. And so finally they give up. And in verse 14, they know what they must do. They must throw Jonah into the sea and they pray, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they throw him into the sea as they must. And the storm ends. The storm ceases. Confirming that Jonah was correct and that Yahweh, Jonah's God, was in fact in control of the sea. And so it's very interesting that as soon as that happens, they, they, fear, uh, they fear the Lord. They actually fear the Lord. And actually, this, the Pew Bible says, when the men saw what had happened, they began to have great respect for the Lord. Yeah, they have great respect for the Lord. I see in the Pew Bible that it says in verse 9 that, that Jonah worships the Lord. So my point is, is that by witnessing God's sovereignty over creation, by witnessing Yahweh's sovereignty over creation, they give their allegiance. We're not sure if they stop worshiping their other gods, but we know that they they believe in the God of Jonah, that God is sovereign. And it's interesting that while Jonah feared God, the fishermen actually fear, they actually revere, they actually give worship to this God by sacrificing to him and worshiping him. Okay, so to, to somebody hearing this story for the first time, it may seem that this is the end for Jonah. And that the moral of the story is that one must not be disobedient lest they face death, lest they face judgment. But we know that uh, this isn't the end um, because in verse 17 we read that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So it's generally thought that the fish was another means of God's judgment but actually based on chapter 2 the fish was the means for God's compassionate salvation to Jonah. God was not finished with Jonah and he was preserving his life in the belly of the fish. We read that, uh, that, uh, that Jonah prays from the fish in chapter 2. He, he says that he called out to God in his distress, that he was in the belly of death, that he was cast into the deep, that he was driven from God's sight, that he was drowning, uh, that, that the seaweed was wrapping around him. And yet when, he, when all this was happening, he said that he remembered the Lord. His prayer came to the Lord and uh, that, God's, that God saved him uh, through the fish. That God saved Jonah through this fish. And this is what I mean at the beginning is that God shows his mercy in peculiar ways. That God is showing his mercy to Jonah in a very peculiar way. A, a fish seems like that's another way for, for Jonah to die. 
Well, it could, but, but God is setting it apart, consecrating it for another means to have mercy. So Kevin Youngblood, that commentator I mentioned at the beginning, he makes an interesting point here. He says that the Lord appears to, ta- uh, to place Jonah in inhospitable, uncomfortable environments in order to externalize his faith condition and confront Jonah with the truth of his spiritual condition. When Jonah is in communion with the Lord and is compliant with his word, Jonah resides on dry land. When, however, Jonah flees the Lord's presence and resists his word, he resides in the extreme and inhospitable, the uncomfortable environments of sea and desert, later in chapter 4. Places of death and chaos that are hostile to creation and to the divine order. In other words, in this book, we see that when Jonah disobeyed, God sent bleak conditions to make Jonah understand God that he needs God, to bring Jonah back to God. Now, the life of Jesus is an interesting uh, antithesis here to Jonah. This is what I mean is that God sent his son to the earth for a purpose. Uh, and, and Jesus went in obedience. Every step of the way, Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father. And we read that even before he took, even before he hung on the cross, the night before he was crucified, he said, Oh Lord, take this trial, take this cup away from me. Take this this." this trial that I'm going to go through, please take it away. And yet he says, he, he submits to the Father saying, not my will, but yours be done. Very much obedient to the point of death. Jonah was disobedient and was judged. Jesus was obedient and was exalted. We are, of course, as Paul writes in Philippians, to have the mind of Christ, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. So we are to take the path tread by Jesus. We are, we are to do, uh, we are not Jonah shows us what not to do. We do what Jesus did. That is our that is the, the, the path that we are to take. So God disciplines those whom he loves. God sends trials and suffering to his children in order to refine them. Or he allow he, he sends and he allows. Um Sometimes suffering comes not because God wants to judge us, but be, simply because he wants us to rely on him. Or things just happen in this world, and he still wants us to rely on him so that he can refine us. And the key, I think, is that we, we shouldn't run away from God in the midst of those trials. Because things may end up worse. Rather, we should turn to him in the midst of the trial or the suffering. And 
we see in the life of Jonah that it took a lot for Jonah to realize God's goodness. Jonah experienced God's mercy and he, and he recognized that and he was thankful for that. And the interesting thing is that that should have made Jonah more like God. And what I mean by that is that should have made Jonah show compassion and mercy to others as well, which is what we're going to see next week. It's what I want to focus on next time. Is that trials either humble us or that makes us grow in pride, which leads to further disobedience and further trials. And of course, the biblical response to trials is to have humility, which is saying, which is responding to God, knowing that we can't do anything but seek him, knowing that we need him above all things. Jonah knew that being thrown into the sea would result in his death. And in a sense, he died. He says, I was in the I was in Sheol. I was in the belly of Sheol. He was descending more and more to death. And some commentators say Jonah likely died, but we don't know. But in a, in a metaphorical sense, he did. Um, and you would think that there would be a new Jonah. Uh, but anyways, in a sense, he died, but he was brought to life. Uh, God had mercy on him. God was not done with Jonah. So God is killing the old nature in all of us. We all have that old person battling to have, uh, to have victory over us. And, and God is continually killing that person in us. And that is in and of itself a mercy. He uses trials and, kill, and to kill the old nature in all of us. Thus showing his scandalous mercy. I want to close with, it's a rather long quote, uh, and I give you that warning so that you can get your brain mentally prepared. It's a quote from John Kelvin, and I think it's, and I was thinking, how can I make this shorter? Maybe I could summarize it, but it's so good that I didn't want to. I think it just really encapsulates what I'm trying to say here, better than what I'm trying to say here. So what he writes is that, in order, in order to keep us in proper obedience to himself, our merciful Father not only anticipates our weaknesses, but also regularly corrects our past failings. Thus, when we are afflicted, we should immediately call to mind our past life. As we do so, we will undoubtedly discover that our past failings are worthy of whatever discipline we receive. Nevertheless, we shouldn't let awareness of our past sins serve as the principal reason for the call to endure suffering. Scripture supplies a more profound reason for us when it teaches that in adverse circumstances, we're being disciplined by the Lord so that we won't be condemned with the world. And he quotes 1 Corinthians, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Further, he writes, therefore, in the midst of the bitterness of tribulations, we should recognize the kindness and mercy of our Father toward us. For even in such tribulations, he doesn't cease to promote our salvation. Indeed, he afflicts us not to ruin us or destroy us, but instead to deliver us from the condemnation of the world. 
This awareness leads us to what Scripture teaches in another place. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. When we discern our father's rod of discipline in our lives, shouldn't we present ourselves to him as obedient and teachable sons rather than as obstinate and hopeless men who become hardened in wrongdoing? If God didn't call us back to himself by means of correction, when we fell from him, he would destroy us. Thus, it's rightly said in Scripture that we are illegitimate children, not sons, if we are without discipline. He quotes from Hebrews, If we are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what is the lesson to be learned for the dynamic life of following God? Jonah was disobedient and was judged. Jesus was obedient and was exalted. So we take the path tread by Jesus. And so the lesson here is this. God's people experience trials in order to know God's mercy. Let us pray. Lord, Help us, just as we sang this morning, those wonderful words of consecration. We, we want to give our heart to you. Help us to be obedient. Help us to respond in humility, O Lord. Help us to take the, the path tread by Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.